and welcome to 13, the bi-weekly podcast that asks 13 questions of Colgate University community members. I'm your host, Daniel DeVries, and today I'm excited to welcome to the studio two folks who oversee the university's Upstate Institute. We have the director of the Upstate Institute and professor of biology and environmental studies, Catherine Cardaluce, and associate director of the Upstate Institute, Julie Dudrick. And the Upstate Institute fosters connections between Colgate University and the regional community to engage students, faculty, staff, and residents through scholarly collaborations that support the Upstate region. Its goal is to promote and advance a broad and deep understanding of the diverse cultural, social, economic, and environmental resources of Upstate New York through community-based research, civic engagement, and the reciprocal transfer of knowledge. So, Kat and Julie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, So I always start at the top, and I think uh, a little primer on the background of the Upstate Institute. Uh, How long has it been around? How did it... Um, how did it come to be, and what exactly does it do? Okay. Well, I'm happy to speak to the history since okay. I've been here since the beginning. So we're about to celebrate our 20th anniversary, um, but conversations about the Upstate Institute began really in you know, 2000, 2001. At the time, the university was engaged in a kind of a strategic planning session and um, sort of thinking about overall impact. And and the idea of some institutes uh, was introduced. And at the time, several faculty members who were doing community-engaged work, they incorporated some type of service learning as a part of their coursework or their own individual research, they came together and said one of these institutes should focus on the local community. Um, these were, you know, this was Ellen Crayley and Bruce Selick and um, uh, Adam Burnett and, um, you know, Jane Pynchon and Jill Tiefenthaler at the time. So they decided um, that if this work was going to be done correctly, the first thing to do was to raise money. Um, in retrospect, that was a brilliant decision because though many other universities do this, very few have develop the resources to fund this type of work that we have. Hmm. And everywhere I go, people at other universities who are doing similar work are envious of the kinds of resources that we that we began with and that we continue to have to do this type of work. I think it demonstrates the commitment that those folks and others at the time made to the local community um, and uh, that that commitment was really focused in an academic way. So that group came together, worked for a few years on shaping what this would look like, and began to raise money, um, and officially kicked off the Institute in April of 2004. There was an event that was focused on the intersection between economic development and higher education. Hillary Rodham Clinton was the senator for, the, for New York State at the time and was our guest speaker, and, and Rebecca Chop hosted her and had this day-long conversation. Um, we started to, we created basically an umbrella and we brought in a number of other things that were happening. So some service learning courses that could be changed into community-based research courses. Um, The field school, which predated the development of the Upstate Institute, was brought under this umbrella. And uh, Jane Pynchon was named the first director. All right. And um, I I think everyone listening from New York will appreciate this question. So what does Upstate consider Upstate New York? Uh Very good question. In fact, yesterday we had a meeting about 
this conversation specifically. Exactly. Yeah, it's a little bit, you know, you'll know it when you mm-hmm. see it, right? Um, you know, and everybody has a slightly different definition. <clears throat> when we began, we started looking at nine counties, and we decided immediately that um, because we also work with other institutions of higher education, we were going to um, sort of focus specifically and primarily on Madison County and Shenango County. And so even though it's called the Upstate Institute, we sort of say it's central New York. Okay. Um, we do work in Utica and Oneida County uh, quite a bit, um, even though there are other institutions that are working there. But, um, you know, our, many of our partners are longstanding and have figured out how to work with several institutions at the same time based on our own strengths and um, curriculum. Uh, we don't work as much in Syracuse, um, but we do more work in the southern tier. And in the last 10 years, we've also started to do more outreach to the Adirondack region. So we kind of have this serpentine area of focus. But it is a geographic commitment, right? So, you know, community-based research is being done a- across the university, um, you know, a- and and faculty are working across the globe. But we focus and fund specifically that work that would have an impact on or be relevant to the local community. Nice. So you mentioned it briefly there in in your answer, but you talked about the Summer Field School. So what is the Summer Field School? How many people participate? What does it involve? So uh, it's basically um, uh, a summer research opportunity for students that uh, have been proposed by community organizations. So about this time of year, we reach out to the community partners that we've worked with in the past, and we ask them to propose some type of research project and identify the types of skills that a student would need to have to conduct this type of research and the kinds of outcomes or the kinds of impacts that that research would have on their organization, the local community they serve, and also the student. We hire students as a competitive process. Um, and we match students to projects based on student skills and interest and um, you know potential uh, and, and future career plans. Uh, the students work full time for ten weeks. They're paid by the university, so they're employees of the university, but they're doing work that's identified by the local organization. Um, they uh, we contextualize the projects for them and with them by bringing them together once a week. Very few of the students are from Central New York, so we kind of introduce them to the history and the um, the the environment, the geography, the economy of the local region, and um, they do significant amounts of work. They also are using these opportunities as a way to, you know, try on a career. Think about, you know, is this the area that they would like to work in um, out of college or eventually? Um, and um, they get to they are known as an individual in the local community, which they value because they are not. They are no longer just seen as one of 3,000 Colgate students. Um, you know, they get to know folks in the local community. And uh, the research that's developed belongs to the community partner. Hmm. Um, and we're very specific about that. We're not, we're not analyzing it on our behalf. We're not publishing it. Um, we are sharing it. And, and we're basically providing the mechanism for the research to be done and disseminated and getting a great student experience for our students out of it. Can you give some examples of some of the summer field school projects that have been done by students, who they worked with, and I guess, um, you know, things that they learned or how it might have been helpful for the community? So I oversee more the Adirondack field school component. So we have students, we had nine students last year who do research in the Adirondacks. This is part of um, this kind of the serpentine geographic distribution. And we've been working with some community members since 2015 or so up there. One example is the Sable River 
Association, for example, and they're very concerned about salt, um, salt in uh, streams and the impact of salt on streams on biodiversity and function. Hmm. And so they they have an experimental site where they don't have salt coming in and sites that do. And so they're looking at the, the response on water chemistry as well as biodiversity. And so this is a wonderful opportunity, for example, for an environmental science student who is interested in um, biodiversity and ecosystem function. But they also get to work for a nonprofit, see what it is to work for a nonprofit, see where funding sources come from. They, they learn real hard skills, right, how to do water quality sampling um, and travel all around the Adirondacks in a car with equipment in the back. So you can do something that the projects that we have are as intensively um, environmental like that to students who worked on, for example, the housing gap in the Adirondacks mm. and understanding how housing um, is limited and how what are some of the developmental projects that can happen for it. So, so what's beautiful about the, the, the setup of the field school or the way it is is community partners propose projects that can be as broad as water chemistry to housing mm. or food. And we have lots of local projects. Yeah, it's hard for me to choose one. There have been 300, so, <laughs> and, and there were so many. I mean, each one really has, um, you know, a compelling story to tell. Either the students' experience, the community partners benefit in the end. One of my favorite projects this past summer was with the center in Utica. So that is an organization that was formerly known as the Mohawk Valley Resource Center for Refugees. And they're kind of a one-stop shop for folks who are um, coming into the city of Utica through um, as either having refugee status or through immigration or secondary migration. We've had students over the past few years working with the center to kind of identify ways that the local community can support those who are coming in with, with refugee status. And they're great projects. But one of the ways the community supports folks coming in is they donate a lot of things, um, which is great. And and folks who are just arriving at the Syracuse airport, you know, benefit greatly from having an apartment set up for them with all of the things that they may need. But it's a lot of stuff. And the center found that they were just spending a lot of time collecting, sorting cleaning and redistributing items based on um, what families might need from, you know, when they're coming from different parts of the world. Um, and so this past summer, they asked a student to help them kind of streamline that process, develop an, an inventory, provide information to uh, volunteers who may just come in for a few hours a week about the different needs of the different populations of folks, right? There are some folks who are coming in who, who are in significant need of rugs, for example, and those are hard to clean, and they're very hard to store. They're hard to move around. So there's a very different process about dealing with that than with diapers, for example. So the students spent a lot of time in the donation center developing protocols, talking with um, people who have just arrived in Utica to determine what they need, what they feel like they have access to, and what they don't have, or what is difficult to move around or, or acquire. And then... Um, um, messaged that to the local community. You know, as you're thinking about ways to support people who have just arrived, give us these things. Maybe hold back on these things. Mm. And she had a great experience, of course, was very interested in the, uh, you know, federal policy related to refugee resettlement in general and its impact on the local community, um, but very specifically developed this concrete database development skill. That's really neat.
Yeah. And the students present at the end of their mm -hmm. summer experience? They do. We require them to do a research poster. We're very careful about how they're going to approach that poster because many of them are collecting data that can't be publicly uh, distributed or, or published. Um, and so they are either developing a poster that includes their data that they've collected or includes some data that they've um, encountered as a part of their project, or they are developing a poster that um, kind of talks about the, um, the importance of the, the um, project that they did and, and um, you know, the reality of it uh, in the local community. So an advocacy poster mm -hmm. more than a traditional research poster. And those hang in our the, the walls of Lathrop and are significant in attracting more students to apply next year. So can you give an idea about how many students participate each summer and the feedback you've received from the different groups that we're assisting? Okay. So we support between around 25 to 32 students a year, and the feedback that we get overall is really positive. Um, it can be as positive as without uh, the student, we wouldn't be able to do what we do, or we wouldn't even exist. Um, so really helping build infrastructure and capacity locally. Mm. Um, but sometimes we get feedback that, you know, it wasn't really helpful. There were, our student was more work than, than help. And so um, this is that matchmaking um, magic that Julie does is, you know, and most of the time it's highly successful, but once in a while it doesn't work. Right. Yeah, and I would add that the, the real value of our work is the community partnerships. So we we have many community partnerships that have lasted for years. You know, almost as many have lasted as long as the Upstate Institute itself. And so the, the, the most important signifier of success is that these partnerships continue. And we are finding students to do these projects most years based on, uh, you know, the individual um, proposal that the organization has provided. And in some years, it's fabulous. And in some years, the community partner comes back to us and says, that didn't work out really well. Either their project wasn't well-formed or they didn't have the capacity to supervise the project or the student wasn't motivated, but they still come back the following year. Mm. And I think that demonstrates that overall that partnership has been instrumental for them. They recognize there's a cost associated with hosting a student and they are investing their own time and their own resources in the student, but the benefit for them significantly outweighs the cost, and that's why they all come back and apply for another student the following year, whether or not last year was successful. Tell me about, uh, I know there's a lot of things that Upstate does, so I'm going to try to get through as many as we can here, but um, tell me about the Burke Chair. Mm. What exactly is it? How does it work? And uh, what is the goal of having, um, well, I'll let you explain what it is. I'm going to do that. I'll let you do this one. So the Burke Chair is uh, just a fabulous opportunity for faculty. So the Burke Chair is an it's the Burke it's the Gretchen Holdley Burke Chair for Regional Studies. It's an endowed chair that um, has been designed for faculty, either internal to Colgate or external, to bring expertise in regional the region um, to one or two classes. Um, so if it's an external candidate, so someone comes from the outside in, like this year we have Anthony Farley from Albany Law School who's teaching two classes in educational studies. Or it can be someone internal who they teach one course on um, something regional and we support their research. And last year it was Tim McKay who taught on earthworms, yes, right? Invasive earthworms. Invasive worms, Exactly. Yeah. And so what it does is it, it exposes um, – 
it, it allows a faculty member to dig deeper into something they're already doing. Um, it gives them a course release so at, for an internal candidate. So they have breathing room to do research, and there's also research support. And so it's one of those really wonderful opportunities that gives the upstate a someone to anchor on for the year, kind of like this is our Burke chair. This is the, the person who's representing the one of the academic faces of the upstate. And we have an event around their class. They can they give a public lecture, but it's also someone we can call upon to um, they serve on our, our executive board. They bring insight into the board um, in our discussions. Uh, but I think for the faculty member, someone who was a Burke chair, uh, I didn't totally understand it till I did it, and I realized that it's a really um, just a wonderful opportunity to dig deeper into your own research and think more about what you're doing and be reflective. And because it's outfacing, right? If there's an outfacing component, you take it um, very seriously. It feels a big honor. What, so, what research did you do as Burke chair? So I can. So the the other nice thing about the Upstate Institute is it recognizes what you're already doing. So yeah. I got to continue with this research that I do on um, deer overabundance in the region. So this is something that I started in 2011, no 2013, actually, and I didn't realize what I was doing was community-based work until Julie told me you're doing community-based <laughs> work. And so I've I've been really anchored to the Upstate Institute since then. Mm. And um, the Burke Chair was a lovely recognition of the work that I do locally. Nice. Yeah, I would say Kat's example is an excellent example for what the Upstate Institute tries to do for faculty. So initially you worked with us and received a faculty research grant, and that paid for a deer exclosure. And then uh, once that exclosure was created, you also received a course development grant to find a way to incorporate student research into and around that deer exclosure, and then also the Burke Chair, and now as a faculty director, is encouraging other faculty to think about how to adapt or include community-based research into uh, what they've always studied. Right. So I'm I, I'm the poster child. <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm saying. I yeah. really mm-hmm. um I've really benefited by my association with the Upstate, and it and this is one of those great. Uh, things about Colgate. It's that you can, um, I'm an international researcher. I work on forest conservation in tropical regions, and I happen to really also want a local field site and to be able, and the Upstate showed me how I can do that. Hmm. It showed me how I can do community-based work. Julie has been incredibly supportive of of kind of how faculty navigate and former directors have been helpful in navigating and showing me how I can do it. How do you work with community partners? How do you do a presentation and invite the mayor? Things like this. So the connections that are made. So I feel like I've grown up and learned a lot just through this association of the Upstate. Nice. So another one of the things that um, Upstate oversees is the university's lifelong learning program. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about what that is and um, the impact that has on the community? Yeah, that was such a great project. That came out of um, student research, actually. There there were a few folks in the community, the Browns, Coleman and Irene Brown, um, Arthur Rayshap, and a couple of others, Dick Cheshire, who, you know, really wanted to kind of create uh, a a learning community for folks who were um, retired from Colgate or those who maybe were associated with Colgate at some point and came back here. Uh, And so several students... 
spent a year. Some of them were in um, a class that Barbara Regenspan had organized um, and uh, a couple of other faculty in, in educational studies um, to look at the benefits of that type of lifelong learning. Those exist across the country as well, um, but it was a model that needed to be adjusted significantly to work in this small rural community often dominated by an elite liberal arts college. And so those students did some interviews with local community organizations um, to sort of identify like, you know, in what way are you engaged with the uh, senior population? Uh, We did some outreach here on campus uh, with some of our programs that do provide kind of continuing education for different populations of people. There was a high school program, for example, um, some of the scientists had had done kind of outreach and found ways to share some of the resources that exist in some of our uh, science spaces on campus. So we kind of tried to figure out, like, what does that look like and who are you reaching and maybe who who isn't being reached. So a committee of local seniors were brought together, um, and we kind of said, let's just try it and see what happens. There were several other programs in the community that were also providing this kind of ongoing education. There was Fort Knightley Club and an organization called Education Unlimited. So we were trying to be really careful not to um, duplicate something, but to enhance something. So we, you know, brought together um, th- that committee, and we sort of threw, you know, threw together a semester. The first professor was. David Dudrick, <laughs> because I was desperate. Like, can you please try to teach one of these classes and see how it goes? Yeah. And, you know, the response was universally positive. Um, so how does it work? It's a, it's a Colgate professor or someone affiliated with Colgate, and they and they host, like, micro classes? Is that's that right. What? Most faculty will teach a three- or four-part series, um, and they are often um, similar to some of the classes that are being taught on campus at the time. Um, If they differ, they are uh, kind of include some kind of component about, you know, current resources or current events. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, presidential elections are always really popular. Um, You know, state policies like the CLCPA, that was very popular, those kinds of things. Um, And so, um, you know, people are members of the Lifelong Learning Program. And, um, you know, a couple of times a year they receive a a kind of a course catalog Mm -hmm. and they're able to participate in any of the lectures that are taking place. Most of them do happen in the community. Some of our members don't feel completely comfortable, you know, navigating our campus and finding a place to park. (laughs) So, so, you know, they happen at the Mm -hmm. library or they happen at the Palace Theater. Um, You know, I was able to take a group of of, um, folks who are members up to the Oneida Mansion a couple of weeks ago. So we do some field trips and that kind of thing. And there's a sense of community among the, the group as well. So um, I think they appreciate the, um, the access to the Colgate faculty, but they're also members of the um, local community who teach the classes as well. You know, there are a lot of classes focused on personal finances and on um, wellness and health. Um, and the committee shapes, you know, what what topics are going to be explored in the next year. So we support it with, um, you know, with administrative uh, support and time. And then we also kind of make those connections known. We, we kind of make sure that the committee knows that they can, you know, reach out to us to explore the idea of bringing in a faculty member who maybe hasn't hasn't taught in the past. We've also had students teach. Oh, that's really Which neat. they love. You know, students did um, – kind of cultural classes about the country that they came from. Students did cooking classes in the past. Students did a session on how to use your smartphone. (laughs) That was really popular. 
Yeah. Nice. It's a great group. And, and I think yeah. universally recognized as a really mm-hmm. important way to connect to the local community and share resources with the local community. I, I would add to that that it's also very affordable. <laughs> so comparable programs like this are $1,300 or more, and an individual membership is $40 yeah. here. And so there are 140 members. It is a vibrant group. I've been to their board meeting. They're very um, well are you know, well organized and uh, and are loving it. Hmm. And um, they have a lot of energy. Really so they're a lot of fun. And it's one of the most successful classes I've ever taught. I taught a climate change class, which was two days of two hours, and they all went over and everyone attended. And, and they're some of the best students. Tell me about some of the other programs that uh, Upstate runs. And I'm thinking, uh, I have, I guess, three in general that I'm thinking of. One is the VITA program. Uh, one, uh, College and Prison, is that another one? And uh, any kind of reading projects for local schools. So the VITA program uh, began about the same time as the, the Upstate Institute as well. So this is, um, you know, the, the program itself is uh, run by the IRS and happens in a lot of different communities. But again, it looked a little different when we brought it to Colgate. So Nicole Simpson in economics uh, sort of was the first faculty member associated with this. She does her own research on the earned income tax credit and uh, as an anti-poverty tool, basically. Um, and received funds from the Upstate Institute to do that type of research. So um, when the uh, when the institute was created, we kind of assumed the VITA program uh, initially worked with um, uh, Madison County Department of Social Services and also incorporated Shenango County early on. And so this is a program in which students are trained um, in tax preparation methods. And then uh, people who qualify uh, by income and by size of household can bring their tax information to the students, um, either for individual appointments or in um, Saturday group sessions, and the students will um, will complete their tax return. Um, and they will submit it to the IRS and, and help with the process of getting a often a sizable tax refund. Mm. It was for many years funded by the what was called the Shenango United Way at the time. They, were, they, were, they have expanded as well. Um, and that was quite successful. So the focus has always been Madison County and Shenango County. And the Shenango United Way created the what was called the Cash Coalition, stands for Creating Assets, Savings, and Hope. And that coalition reaches um, what, what United Way often refers to as the Alice population. So that is um, uh, an acronym that, that stands for the um, for asset limited, income co- income constrained, employed, hmm. uh, and so those folks often qualify for the earned income tax credit. Uh, so we are a part of the Cash Coalition, and we work with other VITA programs run by other or other universities in other counties as well. So it's really a great opportunity. We have a direct connection to the IRS, so we're aware of changing regulations that might impact the people who are coming in to have their taxes done. Uh, but we're also kind of, it's a best practices committee. And that was the idea of the United Way, which was an excellent idea and has really helped to to grow the program through the through the years. Uh, the United Way no longer funds the program. NBT Bank funds the program. Yeah. Um, and uh, we were able to find that funding initially through a Colgate connection. And NBT has continued to support the program every year since. It's a great opportunity for Colgate students. A lot of students are in economics or political science. And so they're very interested in anti-poverty programs. But it's really impactful for them to sit across the table 
from somebody, uh, look at their financial information and help them understand how to benefit from the earned income tax credit. Hmm. And a lot of these folks are getting significant refunds that um, are, you know, a, a big portion of their annual income, basically. And uh, that refund will have a significant impact. It also has a significant impact on the local community. You know, m- multi-millions of dollars are being returned to the local community, and that's money that's being spent locally. So um, in terms of dollars spent, but also in terms of community impact and student impact, it's a really significant one. Nice. You want to tell me about the, uh, let's say, the reading projects in local schools? Oh, sure. So uh, you know, we are co-located with the Cove, the Center for Outreach Volunteers and Education. So a lot of students come through the Cove and do some type of service hours, some type of community volunteerism. Um, and reading has always been a significant portion of that. So we have um, done a lot of research on um, language acquisition and on literacy in general. We were a part of the Madison County um, Literacy Providers Network. Actually, the uh, the kickoff of that organization happened at Colgate. We hosted the kickoff session for that many years ago. And we worked with schools and libraries to kind of think about how to increase literacy rates in, in Madison County in general. Um, the schools really were the driver of this. And um, several uh, sort of barriers to increased literacy kept coming up. And there were things that libraries really needed to do and schools needed to do. But the one thing that really came up was um, – getting books into the hands of young kids and finding ways for those kids to just spend hours with those books. That's difficult for the schools to do because that one-on-one time is really expensive. So Dolly Parton Imagination Library was a part of the Literacy Providers Network, and that happens across the county. So we, we, we got the books to the kids, but the issue still is finding ways to spend hours with the books. And so um, we were aware of the America Reads initiative that came out of Bill Clinton's administration many years ago. And that was an initiative that um, hired college students, gave them work-study funds to mentor young children as they learn to read on, in a one-on-one setting and, and train the students in how to read with a child. Um, to my knowledge, Colgate never took advantage of that when it was a federal work-study opportunity. Um, it still existed in a lot of other places, although um, it's, it, you know, there's, there are, it's not currently a program that colleges can apply for funding. Um, so we uh, really wanted to introduce this as a concept. We, we went to Madison Central School and said, you know, if we were able to develop this, would you be interested we did a pilot project. We hired 10 students through work study. Um, and so these students had the opportunity to go to Madison Central twice a week. They spend, as a result, about five hours a week reading with an, with a child. They develop a really strong connection to that child. Um, and um, the pilot was quite successful from the perspective of the school, our students, and the parents. And so we're in our second year. To continue the program, we'll need to raise money for it, mm-hmm. um, but we feel like the feedback at this point initially is strong enough that we won't have an issue doing it. Where, where does funding from Upstate come? I know you have an endowment, but do people give to it? Like, is it pulled out of the Colgate Fund? I'm, I'm curious where that money comes from. I actually don't know about the connection to the Colgate Fund. Okay. So, yes, so the, so the endowment was raised initially um, from the time the institute was started until about 2007. Um, the directory spent most of her time, Ellen Crayley, 
um, raising money, and she was masterful at it. Um, and so, so about forty individuals gave to that uh, that initial effort. Oh, wow. um, since then, several additional gifts have been given to allow us to do things like the Burke Chair and to, to expand our research into the Adirondacks. Um, we every once in a while will apply for grants for things like the Vita program or specific projects, um, but we also find that that alumni are enamored of the work and funds are just sometimes show up in our spending account, which is really nice. Nice for the holiday season. exactly. I mean, it's a great way to give back to the community, Mm -hmm. too. It's it's something where I really, you can see Colgate's impact and people like around in the community see it, too, and I guess benefit from it. Um, And speaking of that, too, um, the prison program. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about that, Kat? So we're part of the Mohawk Consortium of College and Prison. And which is a wonderful opportunity for faculty to to teach a class um, in in a college se- in a in a prison setting, and so we work with two different um, prisons uh, depending on where need is and depending on what the class what class is needed. The most interesting aspect of this for me is that we have many faculty very interested in teaching in a, a prison setting. Hmm. Um, so we have faculty who do research on it. We have faculty who um, have always uh, advocated for the rights of prisoners or want to understand what is what is it like in a prison from from whatever perspective you need. Mm-hmm. And um, the the faculty that I've spoken to about this find it one an incredibly rewarding experience. They find students that are very interested in their class, that it's um, and and they often want to keep continue teaching. Hmm. And so we have more faculty interested in teaching the class than we do credits from the the from Colgate. So we're hoping to increase that. But I think it's a really interesting and wonderful opportunity for faculty to teach in different settings and what, teach what different thing, populations. What kind of things are they teaching? Um, we have faculty who've taught um, writing. Taught, we have faculty who teach intro biology. We have faculty who teach history. Right, so it depends on the subject, or it depends on the need. So a lot of of who gets to teach it's literally who gets to teach is driven in large part by what is the need. Gotcha. And so there's an associate's degree associated with this, so they have certain general requirements, and so not everybody can can teach in the prison, but we have many faculty who would like to. Nice. Want to add to that? I, I think that was right. Okay. I think that's right. Um, so. Uh, you mentioned earlier, Julie, that uh, you're coming up on your 20th anniversary, mm-hmm. I guess. Where do you see uh, the future of Upstate? Mm-hmm. Do you see any big changes to the program, um, Any anything that uh, is coming down the line to look forward to here? You know, I, I guess it's a mark of our success so far that that the message has been just keep doing what you're doing. Um, and, you know, I think we're, we're trying to reach faculty at all stages of their career. Um, you know, when faculty first come to Colgate, we want to make sure that they are aware of the resources that exist here because many are coming with an interest in some type of community-based research and few are from the area. So they are going to need some help finding community partners to work with or finding or learning more about issues that are important to the region. Um, and so we want them to find us early on so that they know that that we can be a resource. And whether they find us by 
meeting a student who has done a field school project with a community partner that has inspired their interest in the specific topic, or whether they found us by co-teaching a course that has some community-based research component, we want them to know that, you know, as they sort of spend years here, there are a lot of other opportunities to kind of rethink their their teaching or their individual scholarly research that would include some type of community-based research component. And, you know, I think when we say community-based research, what we generally mean is this type of research that has kind of three components to it or principles behind behind it. So one is that the partnership with the community organization is really important. So it's not research on the right. local community, although we do fund that sometimes as well, and that's also very important. But this type of research is often developed by the community partner rather than by the faculty member. Um, so it's proposed by the by the organization, and they identify the way in which it would enhance or benefit either their organization or the area in which they're working. And then it's the, the second sort of principle of it is that there, there are multiple ways of accessing knowledge. So, so in this type of research, a community partner can be considered a co-teacher or co-educator. Um, and so rather than just accessing knowledge through the library or um, you know, from, an, from an, an academic source, the knowledge comes from the community itself, right? You're doing interviews, you're doing focus groups, you are observing, you're, you know, surveying, you're mapping, you're collecting data. And then the third principle is that the goal of the research is um, is to give back to the local community, some type of social change mm-hmm. rather than an, an academic publication or a conversation or or a workshop. It is a knowledge it's knowledge that's given back to the community it, because it it came from them in the first place so it's sure. it's digested it's analyzed and it's given back to them so that they can do something with it to move forward so to follow on what what Julie's saying i think that public scholarship which is a lot of what we're talking about this community based work of public scholarship one of the hopes that i have in at a, institutions around the country but particularly colgate is there's greater recognition for this public scholarship the, the, the work that it takes to have your students out in the field or for you to be out in the field and developing these community partnerships is that is a, a lot of energy. It's a, it, and it's very different than traditional research. And so this recognition that, for example, putting on a panel of experts or um, doing research locally that impacts decision making while not a publication is still valuable because it informs. Mm. And so how you're informing and who you inf- who you inform becomes important, right? And so th- th- these are the the differences between the academic literature, for example, and what we're doing, some of the work that we're doing here. And we'd like, I, I expect to see greater validation. I think this is a movement in the United States as well, this notion that you're not just an ivory tower institution, that you actually give back. And I think the Upstate Institute is an incredible example of that. And I, and I hope over the next 20 years, right, there's greater recognition of the impact that the Upstate Institute has. It, it's, it's powerful but subtle. Mm. I always talk about us as a sm- small but mighty institution because we actually have incredible impacts, 
but they're in it feel they're they're small accumulated impacts yeah. and we've built a really strong foundation at the upstate and we're well known but it's not just one splashy thing it's it's embedded in the community and that kind of um uh, in, uh of of strong foundation it, there's nothing more to do but build on it mm. right we're very solid and so i just i i see the upstate as as growing in terms of its anchoring of the region. Nice. Do you have any special events or things planned for 2024 in celebration of the 20th anniversary? Yeah, we have some fun things that we're planning right now. We're particularly excited about um, April 5th was the the date on um, that it was a st- Upstate Institute was established in 2003. April 5th, 2004. 2004. That's right, mm-hmm. 2004. And so on April 5th, we have a brown bag oh. um, in 2024. That's going to be the launch of the of 20 years, and it's going to be associated with a community-based class, ah. quite appropriately, um, taught by Andy Pattison, and uh, who is was a former Burke chair and on the executive board, very associated with the Upstate Institute. And then we have other events that we're planning throughout the year. But again, this is one of those fun things, interesting things about the Upstate. It's it's who 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 are our people, right? Who are the stakeholders of of the Upstate Institute? And it's it's everybody. It's the community. It's faculty, staff. It's students. It's it's big. And so it's hard. So we're doing smaller events throughout to recognize all of our constituents. Nice. Yeah, I think one thing we'll we are looking forward to focusing a lot on the summer field school, right? As our that's our signature program. Our signature program is the summer field school, and so this summer will be the twentieth iteration of the field school. So we will take the opportunity to celebrate these students, but also all the students who have come before. And and so alumni uh, affairs and ad- advancement are helping us to think through how to invite those folks back and how to um, kind of inform them of, of, of what has happened um, with their organizations or, or with the work that they did years ago. Nice. And you've made it to question 13. So congratulations. Oh, wow. That's it. <laughs> um, tell me about what you think is the most surprising or impactful research finding in the over 300 projects that you've supported uh, through this uh, the past 20 years um, with the Upstate Institute? Oh, my gosh. That's a lot of projects. <laughs> Boy, that is a lot of projects. <laughs> I have much less time here than Julie, so Julie will think of a finding. But I think the most inc- – um, the thing that I see is the – because I – I meant so during the field. Uh, just to add to the field school, the field school students. Um, it's it's such an unbelievable experience. <laughs> they um, they they get to enter a formal workplace um, with a nonprofit. Learn you know that in nonprofits you do everything that's needed, yeah. right? You do everything from collect the data to sweep the floor when needed when someone's showing up, right? Yeah. So you see how hard everybody's working at at these places and how meaningful that work is. Mm-hmm. So I, I, what I'm seeing, so we meet with students, with each student, um, half an hour each week. We have them on Fridays, all day Friday. We, we do trips. We, 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 we show them more about what's going on locally. They get lectures or workshops on how to do social media, how to build story maps, how to do posters. They're getting real skills. And by the end of this, you see this transformation of the student. Uh, from someone who comes in kind of unsure of how to walk into a workplace to someone who has this confidence because they've been given so much independence and, and it's been asked of them. So I find that 
that it's not so much a finding that it is, is that it's the development of the student um, at the end that's quite profound. Mm. Um, and that's coming from the professor side, right? I can't help yeah, yeah. take off my professor side. From the community side, you see that the poster session that the community partner is just saying, holy cow, this is, was such a great um, experience and look at what was produced and how we can use this and let's plan the next one. Mm. And so I think the whole process is, is, the, is the victory, if you can use that word, that whole process of seeing this transformation on both sides more than perhaps a data point. Yeah, I I agree. I, I would say, you know, for me, it's been it's been, you know, having done this for so many years, it's interesting to me to see uh, how though the world has changed significantly in that time, what students often um, remember from these projects is the process of learning how to ask a question, and sort of watching them as they learn the the importance of and the value of asking people questions, right? Like learning, asking them about their story, asking them about their knowledge. It, it really, it honors the person. You know, the person so often feels a little surprised that, you know, an, a researcher at Colgate is looking for information that this person has, wants to know more about their story, and wants to learn from their particular, from their information, using their information, learn from their story. And um, so watching students sort of uh, learn how to do that and then produce something out of the, the knowledge that they gained. I, I would say across the board of all the 300 projects I've watched over the 20 years, that's been really impactful mm. on the community, certainly, but also significantly on the students themselves. And that was 13. There you go. Kat, right. Julie, thank you so much for joining the program today. Uh, if you, you want to learn any more about the Upstate Institute, you can visit colgate.edu slash Upstate Institute. And then there's also a little button there. You can sign up to receive news and information via email. I know they do a regular newsletter. And uh, if you have any questions for Kat and Julie, feel free to send them along to 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13, the number. And until next time, and Happy New Year, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications and Events. Episodes are recorded on campus in Lathrop Hall. Executive Producer, Colgate Vice President for Communications and Events, L. Hazel Jack. Producer and host, Dan DeVries. And audio production by Brian Ness. Learn about all the happenings at Colgate at colgate.edu, colgatemagazine.com, and colgateresearchmagazine.com. 